Welcome to The Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we read from Amos chapter 9. It is the end of the prophet Amos's book here, so we'll be moving on to a new book tomorrow. But let's conclude today. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord Yahweh of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. Yahweh is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares Yahweh? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord Yahweh are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares Yahweh. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name declares Yahweh, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says Yahweh, your God. This is the word of the Lord. Just as we mentioned, this is the last chapter of the book of Amos. This is the final vision. He's been given a series of five visions by Yahweh, three of them in chapter 7, Two didn't come to pass. Uh, The Lord relented when Amos pleaded on behalf of the people. But the third will come to pass. And then the fourth was in chapter 8 yesterday. The fifth and final vision here in chapter 9. And this vision is a vision of God's judgment. He is standing beside the altar. We're not told specifically here which altar. Um, Altars are where people would offer things. Um, If it's the altar of burnt offering... In the temple courtyard, they would offer animal sacrifices. 
and, and sacrifices of grain and things like that. If it is the altar of incense, then it is actually inside the temple, and that is where they would offer up incense and prayer before the Lord. The fouling context, I would suggest, makes it sound like he's talking about the altar of incense inside of the temple. Because what he says as he stands beside the altar is, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. This is not capitals like capital cities or capital letters. This is a capital as in the top, the chiefmost part of a pillar or a column. And so if you've ever seen a a pillar that has a decorative top, for example, that might be an example of something like this. And so the, the temple has columns inside of it. And the Lord is saying, strike the tops of the columns until even the very threshold shakes. And that threshold, by the way, is going to be the, the door. And so you're hitting, you're hitting the tops of the building, and even the door itself is going to start shaking. This building's giving way, right? It's, it's going to come crashing down. It's been struck from above, and it falls. The, the interesting picture here, again, is this is a top-to-bottom motion, right? God is striking. He is commanding that his judgment come from above, strike the top of the temple, until the very bottom of it shakes and, and the whole thing is, is going to fall down. This is a little bit of a trickier question, maybe, uh, to, to work with your children. But what else might they remember is in the temple that is destroyed from the top to the bottom? Can they remember anything like that? And that's hopefully going to connect you to an opportunity to talk about the cross because at the time of Jesus' death on the cross on Good Friday, one of the things that happens is that the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on temple curtain stuff today because that's not in the text. It's not our theme. But pointing you forward to God's judgment, right? This is God's judgment here. And God's judgment that we deserved fell upon Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And that temple curtain being torn in two from top to bottom at the moment of Jesus' death is a reminder that we are now in God's presence uh, and that we live. And it's such a blessing indeed. So in this picture, though, God's judgment not falling on Jesus, God's judgment falling on the people. In fact, as the temple falls, it lands on the heads of people and kills them. Like when Samson prays that the Lord gives him that moment of one more act of strength, he puts his hands on the pillars of the Philistine temple or building that he was in, whatever that complex was. He pushes with all his might and takes out those two pillars and the the complex comes crashing down and kills those who are within it. Those who are left, those who survive the destruction of their idolatrous temples, the Lord will kill with a sword. So Assyria is going to take care of them. None will escape. And then we get a picture of that, right? So if they try digging, Sheol is a reference to the underground, um, like we would say six feet under kind of idea, or just the underworld sometimes, the idea we might think of as hell. So if they try and hide down below, he'll find them. If they try to go up into the heavens, he'll find them. Um, If they think that they can escape and hide out on a mountain, the Lord will find them. Mount Carmel is a mountain off to the northwest of Israel. 
if they think they can go even to the bottom of the ocean or the sea, the Lord will find them. In fact, in that one, he's going to use a serpent to bite them. In all the other ones, he's doing it himself, right? I will bring down, I will search them out. But here I will command the serpent, which is an interesting choice here because this is the same word used in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, when we learn that the serpent was more crafty than any other creature that God had made. And we're, we talk about that serpent as being the devil who tempts Adam and Eve in the garden. Same word here. In the Hebrew, it can be translated as serpent. It could also potentially be translated as dragon. Um, so a basically a large water-living creature or beast. It might be the best picture here. Although, it's not to say that the Lord does not employ, that the Lord does not work through the devil and his demons. Um, the book of Revelation talks that way, that the Lord will send the demons. He will permit them to do evil things, but he puts limitations on it. So it could be connected here too. As I pondered on these particular words, I was reminded of a hymn uh, that I actually enjoy quite a bit. It's uh, a hymn that is not in the Lutheran hymnal. You won't find it there. It was written by a Catholic gentleman who's still alive. Um, let's see, Dan Schutte, I think is his name. The, the name of the hymn is Yahweh, I Know You Are Near. And one of the verses, um, Where can I run from your love? If I climb to the heavens, you are there. If I fly to the sunrise or sail beyond the sea, still I will find you there. That hymn has ingrained it into me that there's nowhere in this creation that I can go where the Lord will not know me, where the Lord will not care for me and provide for me and love me. And that is, that is a great joy. But it's the opposite of what I see here in the text, right? This is, this is that you cannot hide from the Lord's judgment. He will know where you are and his judgment will find you even to the point in verse 4 where if they even sell themselves, right, enslave themselves off to one of their enemies. So rather than let Assyria come in and destroy, they're going to go down to Egypt and let Egypt be their new slave master again. Even that won't do. The Lord will find them and he will destroy them in that place. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good strong language of God's judgment that is going to go throughout this text. So Yahweh of hosts touches the earth and it melts. So we have a language of fire there, heat. Then we get water um, later in the verse with the rising of the waters of the Nile, just like we had yesterday in chapter 8, verse 8, the idea that the waters of the river exceed their banks, it floods, it destroys, and then it just recedes again and goes away. And so God's judgment is going to be destructive. So God also then builds his upper chambers in the heavens. So whereas we are limited, right, and at this point in history, their tallest buildings aren't that tall. Even our skyscrapers, though, have nothing on, on the ability of the Lord to make his habitation in the heavens itself. He founds his vault upon the earth. So where the Lord stores whatever he wants to store, he calls the waters forth and they come. 
rhetorical questions there in verse 7. Are you not like the Cushites to me? Cushites are descendants of Ham. So you remember Noah had the three sons that were on the ark with him, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham and his family tree are cursed after the flood because of what he does to his father when his father Noah falls naked after getting drunk. Ham looks upon his father's nakedness, perhaps sought to embarrass him. The text is not necessarily all that clear there. But Noah calls a curse down upon him from the Lord, and that then goes down to Canaan, Ham's son, and all of Canaan's offspring after him. The Cushites are one of those groups, and they move down by Egypt. They're a a pagan group at this point. So God is declaring that the Israelites are no different. They are just as pagan as this group that does not know God. They have abandoned the Lord. It's interesting that he then declares that he has brought up the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kir. The Lord is in control of all things. Right? We know the connection of Israel and Egypt. Your children, you might even ask them to, to share with you how God saved Israel, his people, from the land of Egypt. We don't know as much about these other two examples, but the Lord is in control. If anything happens on this creation, the Lord is in control. When one nation topples another, the Lord is in control. And we know from Scripture it's even his doing. That goes back to Amos chapter 3, verse 6, where God asked, Does disaster come to a city unless Yahweh has done it? We are to remember this about the Lord, that he is in control of all things, and that he permits evil when he seeks to bring about good for his creation, but at the same time, he does act in judgment upon sinners. And he does that wherever he deems it to be appropriate. And that's God's to say, it's not ours. If we could declare when judgment should fall, then we would be God. Verse 8, he sees, right? His eyes are upon the sinful kingdom, he will destroy it. However, he will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. He has made a promise back in 2 Samuel 7 to King David that one of his descendants would always sit on his throne forevermore. And the Lord is going to keep that promise. And that's what we're going to see starting down in verse 11. Behold, I will command, the house will shake. He will shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a a sieve. Uh, The word sieve may not be as well known today as it has been in history. I guess it's fair to say that you probably have a couple of examples maybe in your kitchen of what a sieve would be like if you have a colander, uh, not C-A-L, but C-O-L, the, the thing that you use to drain liquid from pasta. Um, or if you have maybe a sifter, like if you were going to um, sift flour. And those are examples of sieve-like devices. that have. It's basically a bowl that has holes in it. And when you shake stuff inside of that bowl, some of it will pass through, but the larger things will not pass through. And the picture here then, my understanding is that Israel will not pass through, right? The Lord is going to sift this. He's going to put it through a sieve. No pebble, no person shall fall to the earth. Only the dust, only the ashes of what is destroyed. So the Lord is is judging his people here. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. 
And then the vision ends in verse 10 with Israel's denial, like their confident boast, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Pride. I think that's a pride that we have seen pretty clearly in our own nation, the thought that we are basically invincible and that the world cannot harm us, uh, that our military can protect us, our laws, our freedoms, whatever it may have been. I, I sense maybe a little unraveling of that, but there's still a fair bit of pride in this land, and that leads to destruction. All right, verses 11 through 15 are going to promise restoration. And this is an interesting picture. Typically, when you get restoration language in the prophets, prophecy about God restoring, it's going to be a twofold thing with a partial fulfillment done in the near future, but a greater fulfillment done in Christ. And I think you've got to look at this section that same way. Uh, that the Lord is going to raise up the booth of David. So the house of King David, that promise from 2 Samuel 7 that one of his descendants will sit on the throne, he's going to raise up its ruins, rebuilt as in the days of old. This is you know, connected to King Cyrus of Persia in 538 who destroys Babylon and, and sends the Jews home. He frees them and allows them to return to Jerusalem and rebuild. They're part of his kingdom. I mean, he doesn't quite free them, I guess you would say. But he sends them home and lets them rebuild, even pays for the rebuilding. Behold, days are coming. Plowman shall overtake the reaper, treader of grapes the sower. Basically, so abundant will Israel be that there won't even be time of rest in between the seasons. There will be so much um, that they can harvest and plant no breaks for the, the laborer there. And the mountain will drip with wine. The hills will flow with wine. That's quite a luxurious picture. He's going to restore the fortunes of his people. He's going to rebuild their cities. They're going to inhabit them. Again, 538 BC is when we see this. They plant vineyards and drink their wine. This is actually a, a, a reversal of what we've seen already in the book. That was Amos chapter 5, verse 11. They have planted pleasant vineyards but shall not drink their wine. Well, now they will, right? This is good stuff. The problem is, verse 15, I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. That promise does not sound like the restoration of Israel in 538, does it? They are under Persian control. Persia is conquered by Greece. Greece conquered by Rome. Rome conquered, well, eventually by by the Germans from the north. One nation after another falls. The Israelites don't have that land really today in their possession. And so what we would then end up looking at is that the, the booth of David being raised up, that promise of 2 Samuel 7 is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who sits on the throne forever. And then this planting in this land, we should take that promise to be of paradise where you and I are being planted by the Lord, and we will never again be uprooted. He is giving us a home where we will dwell with Jesus forevermore. That's the way to ultimately look at this promise of restoration that concludes the book of Amos.